You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. How strong can the U.S. dollar get and what are the implications for the global economy? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. In the co-pilot seat today is Darius Dale, hot off vacation, a, two, a whole two-day <laughs> vacation. Hey, Darius. <laughs> What's up, Maggie? How are you? How are you doing? It's no good rest to be uh, back and recharged. Right? I'm glad you got to unplug at, at least for a little bit. Um, but, but, you know, we're, we're kind of in this weird week where it's a little bit quiet. We're kind we're waiting on that central bank meeting, but gosh, we've been keeping an eye on the dollar and it paused today after another four day, uh, streak higher. We have the Euro sitting at the parity level, Chinese yuan at a two year low. What are you looking at when it comes to the U S dollar? Do you expect that strong U S dollar trend to resume? Yeah, very much so. Actually, I just sent you guys a chart on this. Uh, this is something we talked about with uh, 42 macro subscribers this past weekend, which is um, you're now starting to see the dovish pivot that the market's really priced into asset markets, particularly through the lens of the euro dollar curves, OIS curves, et cetera. That dovish pivot is now being being pulled, priced out in reverse. Um, so if you throw up that first chart, Brian, slide 11, where we show the spread between the yield on the euro dollar December 2023 contracts minus December 2022 contracts from, let's call it early to mid-June through mid-July, we saw nearly 100 basis points of 2023 rate cuts priced into money markets. And that had obviously created um, a lot of selling pressure on the dollar, which obviously from a positioning standpoint uh, was due for a correction. Now we're actually seeing that move come out in reverse. We've actually seen a couple of uh, 25 basis point hikes priced out of that expectation. And so if you look at the title of the slide, it sort of you know kind of alludes to the fact that this is a Federal Reserve that is nowhere near achieving its objectives on inflation. It's made a lot of progress if you look at the most recent inflation data and some of the leading indicators of inflation. But it's certainly not a, a Federal Reserve that I think or, you know, I'm starting to believe other investors think that is going to be comfortable at all signaling a, a policy pivot uh, anytime soon, certainly as soon as 2023. So we might have to, we might be entering a third phase of the monetary policy discussion here in the U.S. It, and it's 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 tricky, isn't it? Because we we see as we head into this meeting, we're going to get a speech from Powell on Friday. There are a mm -hmm. bunch of central bankers and finance ministers from around the world that are gathering at this annual conference. We have we know the Fed wants to present this hawkish 
perception Mm -hmm. uh, and messaging, but we have weak data that continues to come through, right? Once again, today, we had weak manufacturing data out in the US. We had new home sales falling by 12%. So, you know, how is is Powell going to kind of walk that balance? Do you expect him to acknowledge that or try to quantify what's going on and why they would keep hiking in the face of this weak data? Yeah, so I think it's um so the the, the Fed's got a like to your point it's a very fine line to walk, but I do think there's a very easy path to walking that fine line, which is hey look, we're probably not going to overdo it on the tightening standpoint in the sense that hey, if we, if the inflation data continues to behave, we can slow the pace of further tightening through the policy rate. We're probably still going to have the balance sheet on autopilot, um but at the same time, the Fed does it has started to already uh, sent out a, a litany of Fed heads. If you look at Evans and Kashkari and Daly even last week and Buller, um, and then uh, you also had Esther George uh, a couple of weeks ago as well, uh, and Thomas Barkin as well. They've all sort of come back and said, hey, look, you know, you, you're you pricing in an awful lot next year. And as we go further in time, that's obviously kind of a late August here. When you get into September, and particularly once you get into Q4, and that stuff is a lot more live in terms of uh, market participants having to react to it. That's when you really might start to see a Federal Reserve that is, you know, very much pushing back against that very aggressively. So I would expect Chairman Powell, um, particularly if the August PCE data, the core PCE data, which they're going to get at 830 uh, this Friday, if that data point is, you know, sort of more or less in line with what consensus is expecting, which is a slowdown in, in, in order of magnitude what we saw with core CPI then it's very likely that the Chairman Powell sort of talks out of both sides of his mouth again, which is, hey, we're going to be slowing down the pace of tightening. But guess what? This dovishness you priced into the asset markets, that's wrong. Yeah. But people tend to, the, the, the tendency has been to listen to the dovish side of that message and not believe them when it comes to the hawkish side. So what I know you pay, you have a regime that you look at. Where is the economy? Are yeah, we so, in recession? We have people who say we're already in recession. And some people who say, we're no, not yet. No, no, definitely not yet. So real quick before I even answer that question, I think in terms of the market response to these kinds of commentaries, it's really about the function of the starting point. You know, what's the position? Is the market overbought, oversold heading into the incident? Is the, you know, I'd say this all the time, it's about the setup a lot more than it is about the catalyst. And, you know, the the dovish whispers we heard on that July 27th press conference, you know, that came from a place of, you know, extreme bearish positioning and sentiment, you know, going back to, to late June. Well, now we're going to a place where the markets were extremely overbought, particularly relative to the net liquidity function that we, we track here at 42 Macro for the economy. It, it seems to suggest that the S&P is right around fair value. The fair value for the S&P, rather, is somewhere around 4,000. And so we're about 130 points still north of that in S&P terms. And so we could easily have a flash correction to that if he says anything that's a little bit more hawkish than uh, what's currently priced in asset markets that are obviously very much, again, anchored on that dove scenario. To answer your original question, yeah, however, that's a great, great point, by the way, Darius. Yeah. Oh, yeah. very easily. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of there's a lot of very near term downside risk to asset markets. Now, the real question is, do we have the same kind of downside risk associated with the recession scenario associated with the Fed that's going to be tightening for longer than what's currently priced in asset markets? That, in my opinion, is up for debate still. And we, we got a couple of data points ahead of us that will give us some clues on that, particularly the uh, August 26th, we get to core PCE. Uh, September 13th, we get August CPI. I think the August CPI is a much more substantially important report. Um, but just to answer your question really quickly on are we in recession or not, uh, you go, go uh, Barn, if you put up slide 91, where we show uh, the yield curve analysis, the top panel is the 10s two spread, bottom panel is 10 year, three month. 
And historically, you know, this was something I like to say, which is, hey, when the tens twos curve inverts, that's when you start doing the research on recession, trying to spot the vulnerabilities in the economy from a sector perspective, in terms of household or corporate, from an industry perspective, et cetera, et cetera. When the 10-year, three-month inverts, that's when you need to start preparing for a recession, either with your own personal PL, your own portfolio, et cetera. And we have not seen that 10-year, three-month inversion. It's been very, very sort of resistant to inverting. And in my opinion, I think that's a very clean cut, clear signal that a the recession, a hashtag actual recession, not a technical recession, a legitimate recession where income is declining, et cetera, et cetera, that is not yet should be something that investors should broadly consider as the modal outcome. But we are in fact still slowing, as you alluded to with the data, this morning's data. So is the are the ISM readings something that you're you're looking at as well in order to sort of guide you on when we get to that point? Because I know you know, a lot of the folks that come on here, including Rao, like to look at that as a sort of forward leading indicator. Um, manufacturing has been weak. What are we looking at there for a signal that, hey, maybe we're in the actual recession? It's well, it's, again, so the economy doesn't necessarily all go into recession at the same time. You have different imbalances in the sectors between households and corporates, different industries as well. And so if you look at something like the ISM, you separate the manufacturing from the services sector. I know today's PMI data would seem to suggest their services sector is already in recession, but basically every other data point would refute that. So I'm not going to anchor on that. Um, but if you look at the manufacturing session, re- sector, we're not quite in recession yet, but we certainly are headed that way um, if you look at the ISM. So uh, one chart, Brian. If you put up slide 97, where we show, uh, and all these charts are from our macro scouting product, we put out a monthly presentation so uh, for, our, for our subscribers. But anyway, so the, the new orders minus inventory spread, when you get to these levels, we're currently at minus nine points in that in that spread. There's only been like eight or nine times in history, and this data point, you know, this time series goes back to 1948, in history that have seen such a negative spread between new orders and inventory. So it's telling you that on a forward-looking basis, you're talking about an ISM that should get to on a median basis, looking at the back test from all those the, 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 that insides of eight or nine. You're talking about an ISM that's in the high 30s, low 40s as the modal outcome, as the, as the mm. median outcome from that kind of uh, from that kind of degradation. So this is something we should expect to see this fall is a real outright decline in the manufacturing sector. Now, whether or not that spills over to the broader economy is something that remains to be seen, because, again, we do have a very robust labor market. Um, that is, you know, continuing to sort of at the bare minimum, keep consumer real incomes from declining at a pace that is consistent with a, with a deeper recession. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, that's a super that's a super important point. And this is where, you know, you're getting this sort of mixed bag on the data and it is whipping the markets around. Ash recently spoke with Michael Howell, who talked about this same thing and pointed out that, you know, listen, this downturn may feel a little different now um, and you may get different parts of the economy reacting. Let's have a listen to a clip from that. Okay, I think there's another leg down. Um, you know, we uh, maybe we expected a rebound, uh, you know, maybe after this sharp drop in the first half year, we've been surprised by the intensity of that. 
So we're, we're clearly, you know, rethinking to see whether or questioning our views to see whether they're correct. But we fully expect this next leg down. And that's because we think the economy is softening quite significantly. The data tells us that Asia is already in recession, that Europe is pretty much getting there and the US may be a month or two behind. But we're certainly moving in that direction. Uh, the big debate, I think, at the moment is how deep that recession will be. Uh, we're pretty equivocal at the moment. We're not sure it's going to be a deep recession. We think it's going to be a recession nonetheless. But that is more likely to be a big earnings recession rather than an employment recession. And the reason we say that is that if you look at the, uh, you know, the, uh, the fact of the last two years, the COVID crisis, the skills shortage, the fact that this recession has been probably the most well-flagged of any recession I can remember, I think a lot of corporations are going to hoard labor. They will not want to let labor go quickly. So I think in that context, the employment numbers may stay elevated. Uh, that will put pressure on unit labor costs. Uh, that will hit profitability, and that will cause a big profit slump. Now, the irony in that is that that may be not be enough to move the dial for the Federal Reserve to start easing. Okay, because employment is their focal point. That's the lens they right. look through to gauge things. So you may get the worst of all worlds for equities, uh, a Federal mm. Reserve that is uh, stubborn, but earnings that start to fall away. That full interview is available on our website, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. I think Ash said it best that Michael Halg is a master class in why it's really important to follow liquidity. Um, and it, it, he just brought up some great points. So I encourage you all to go check that out. But Darius, um, this really, I think, matches up with what you're talking about, that because of some of the labor shortages we have, some of the demographics um, and and just, you know, businesses having a really hard time retaining talent, that they're going to hoard it a little bit here. Um, maybe it's recency bias, maybe it's permanent changes in the labor market, but um, they're going to hang on to it more than they might have. And that's going to make the labor market hang in there, but you would have an earnings recession. So, you know, it's kind of two different speeds of the economy. Um, do you see that happening or is it just a matter of a lag that the labor market will eventually catch up? Uh, no, I, I definitely sort of agree with that view. In fact, that's uh, we have a chart in our in our in our deck, one slide one eleven, Brian. I sent it to you, where we show the drawdowns we've seen in the labor supply here in the United States of America. Um, the top panel just shows the employment to population ratio um, since the since the start of twenty twenty. That's off like one hundred and twenty basis points from the pre COVID high. The next panel shows the labor force participation rate, so a separate way to look at it, um, where that's off about you know, 120, 130 basis points from its pre-COVID high. And part of what's driving that are the two lower panels, which is you know the great the, the great uh, uh, sort of a resignation. If you look at the 55 plus older cohort, that's off. I want to say 160, 180 basis points. And then there's the great you know sort of you know mod there's a great movement migration. You know you're having a lot of families um, kind of leave cities and might downgrade from two income households to one income household. So you're seeing the female labor force participation rate, um, you know, structurally depressed as well. So mm -hmm. there is a shortage of labor out there relative to this sort of pre-COVID 2019 style economy. Now, for a while, that shortage of labor has been extremely positive for margins, for companies' ability to, to raise price, et cetera, et cetera, and ultimately corporate profitability, which is why you're saying throughout even in Q2 earnings season, which a lot of us, including myself, thought was going to be a little bit worse than it ultimately turned out to be. Um, you know, you're seeing margins, you know, kind of hang in there, et cetera. Now, I kind of one thing that I will push back on, on Michael Howell, who's brilliant, by the way, I'm certainly I, I, <laughs> you know, I, would, I don't push back on him too much because he's a brilliant economist and, and thought leader. But the reality is 
if you don't have a drawdown in, in total employment, you're probably not going to have a big, steep drawdown in, in, in corporate profitability, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of need both of those things to be happening simultaneously to, for mm-hmm. either of them to happen. Um, you look at uh, one uh, one more chart I'll show uh, is if on slide 112, Brian, where we show, uh, sorry, not 112, slide 110, where we show the S&P's operating margin. That's the first panel. Uh, we're still up at like 15%, which is, you know, still 150 basis points or so higher than any pre-COVID peak. Um, and then we show the uh, corporate profits, the GDP at 12%. We're still, you know, a couple hundred basis points um, higher than the, than the time series mean. Uh, and then where we show unit labor costs and productivity. You know, even with 40-year high unit labor cost inflation at 9.5% and all-time low in productivity growth at two point minus 2.5% year of year, we're still talking about earnings that are growing 5 to 10%, mm. right? Like these are two things that should tell you in isolation that earnings should be down somewhere between 5 to 10%, if not more. And so there's clearly something to the statement that, hey, if you don't see a real big shock to the labor market and, and aggregate income, then you're probably not going to see a big shock to employment. So it really does matter in terms of the pace of, of deceleration on inflation, because again, you're not going to get that shock to total employment unless the Fed keeps tightening for longer than what's currently priced in the markets. So do we think based on that, that the Fed has a shot at actually getting a soft landing, which we've all established they're horrible at. <laughs> they're likely to try to paint that picture when they talk out of both sides of their mouth Friday, but they don't have a great track record with it. But given that labor market situation, does that increase the odds that, that it might look something like a soft landing? Yeah. So yes, the answer, the short answer is yes. And I'll, and I'll explain why. So uh, just adding some context around this, this Fed soft landing, that is their only scenario. That's going to always be their only scenario. It's our job as investors to think about the full range of the distribution, but no, they're, they're only thinking soft landing terms. They can't say anything other than soft landing. Bingo. And, and look, to be, to be clear, when, when, when I wake up in the morning to start doing my job and you wake up in the morning to start doing your job, you assume success, you know, assume <laughs> failure, right? Um, yeah. So let's be fair to them as human beings. But, you know, there's only been, you know, three and a half soft landings in the history of that institution, you know, in 1966, 1984, 1994, 95, and then some say 2019, I'd say three and a half because 2019, we still wound up in a recession, but you can make the case that it wasn't really the Fed. Anyway, um, so the point is, is you know, there is a credible path towards a soft landing. And part of the reason we now see a credible path, I'm not sure if investors are paying attention as, as, as maybe as much as we are to some of these inflation dynamics, but we're seeing historic rates of change to the downside on some of these leading indicators for core PCE inflation, which to be fair to the team transitory, this is it's a step in the direction of, hey, maybe inflation was transitory. Uh, sticky trim mean CPI slowed by 461 basis points on a month over month annualized rate of change basis in July. There's only of all the months in the history of that time series since the beginning of 1983, there's only been one month where we saw a bigger slowdown. And it was obviously in the middle of the GFC. And so there's something to be said with the economy not in recession. We're seeing a significant breakdown in trim mean CPI. So the same thing with median CPI down 247 basis points month over month annualized. Sticky CPI down 270 basis points month over month annualized. You know, these are all like in the, you know, bottom decile, if not bottom couple of percentiles in terms of negative rate of change um, for these time series. So the, the, the key takeaway from, you know, all this, you know, mathiness of it all, which is if we continue down this path of inflation sharply breaking down over the medium term, there will be there is a credible case for a soft landing because it means the Fed and an economy where the neutral rate probably is higher than what they've gotten to thus far can back off before they really put uh, policy into a restrictive territory. 
So that's kind of the key takeaway there. Now, obviously, that requires a lot. Historically speaking, when you look at these time series, when you get these types of breakdowns, they're usually not sustained over the medium term. And so that's kind of the, the modal outcome from that perspective is that we don't get a linear uh, process. But again, this is a very unusual time where we did see a lot of supply chain disruptions. So I just think it really puts a lot of onus on the inflation data for us to study to give us another clue as as uh, to which if the Fed is going to be tightening well into 2023, because that's how you get a hard landing. Mm. And and the tight and and based on what we discussed before, because I, I think it's important that we plug all these pieces into the sort of macro view. You think that the Fed is going to try to continue to lay out this case where like, okay, we're going to be data dependent. Yeah, the economy's slowing. We may be able to ease up on how aggressive we are, but you're way getting over your skis on how much the fact that we're going to flip right away and and cut rates. 100%. Like uh, yeah. to have a situation where the Fed, if they start to draw out the amount of tightening or even hold for a bit, but you think the market's been too aggressive in pricing and rate hikes. I'm sorry, rate cuts, rate cuts, right? The word of the day, hold. The market is currently expecting a Fed to go to as tight as it's going to get and a couple of months later start easing. That's what's currently priced in the money markets. It's what's currently priced in the currency market. And by extension, it's what's currently priced in all asset markets. This is a Federal Reserve that may be forced by inflation data in the coming months. You know, maybe it's not the August report, maybe it's the September or October report that may be forced by the market to guide to something that looks like rate hikes in 2023. And I'm not saying necessarily actualize rate hikes in the sense that they're hiking interest rates. It'll just feel like rate hikes because we're going from a scenario where the markets are currently pricing in rate cuts. I think, again, next year we're somewhere around minus uh, minus 20 or minus 40 basis points of rate cuts. That could go back to zero. You could go positive in terms of what the markets are expecting. Again, if these, you know, kind of inflation drivers, you know, the median inflation, the services inflation, the sticky inflation, and ultimately all on core PCE, if all that stuff, you know, sticks around three to four percent on a month over month annualized rate of change basis. By the way, it's currently at five. You know, we're assuming it gets to three to four percent in a few months. But if it sticks there, then you're gonna have a Federal Reserve that has to tell the market and force the market to price in no easing anytime soon. And that in that scenario, if, depending on where they get the policy rate to, if they get it to restrictive territory, which I would argue it's not currently, if they get it to restrictive territory and there's no easing anytime soon, that's how you wind up with a total drawdown in total employment and a deep earnings recession, et cetera. So we have a couple of questions. I want to start to loop some of them in here. Um, both a beer uh, on Twitter as well as Bob on the RV site asking about gold. Abir specifically said, do you think it's wise to build a long gold position as a recession hedge? How will the strong dollar impact gold? I mean, even people who love gold have been really frustrated by gold. Darius, is that in your in your you know scenario at all? Not, not here's no, no, here's why. I think the market has gotten about as high as it's going to go in SP terms, Bitcoin terms, gold terms, terms, in terms of pricing in the sort of left tail outcome from an economic standpoint, which obviously requires a Fed that is done tightening sooner rather than later, um, potentially as soon as as as, as um, you know as soon as a November meeting. Um, gold, in my opinion, if you look at the net liquidity function, which is something we track on a daily basis, looking at uh, the Fed's balance sheet, the Treasury General Comp uh, balance, and the reverse repo facility balance, you know our our analysis on that in terms of the scenario analysis is saying that hey, look, 
you're probably flat to down in the in like a base case scenario. You could potentially be down seven to nine hundred billion dollars in terms of that function between now and year in. That is not a scenario where gold is going to do well. Um, particularly again, if inflation data stabilizes at a level, you know, that's north, you know, 100, 200 basis points north over the Fed needs it to to be in terms of month over month annualized inflation. So to me, I think the the balance of risk is skewed to the downside from gold. For gold to work from here. You pretty much need that Goldilocks inflation just get you know just breaks down very anomalously you know or so anomalously relative to the time series history. If that occurs, then yes, gold would work. But no, I don't think gold. I think the the, the two thirds chance of gold of gold not working in, in the kind of the worldview that I have. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, and then Tim from uh, on the RV site from New York asking, um, sometime back, you saw a setup for equities to drop sub 3,400. Is that something you still see based on the data? I think at the beginning, you talked about uh, just based on the positioning where we are now, there being downside risk to equities. That maybe oh, yeah. even though we've this week has been a little, the last few days have been a little choppy, there's still too much um, sort of expectation that we're going to get those Fed rate cuts and that there's some vulnerability going into this Jackson Hole meeting if I'm if I'm paraphrasing you correctly. So yep. what what is your expectation for equities? What do you see happening and is, are there any rates you're now looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So uh to, to add some color to what you just said there. Um there's about a, a 130 point gap between, you know, what our estimate of fair value for the S&P is based on our net liquidity analysis between here and now. So um if Jay Powell sneezes the wrong way, on Friday, we're probably going to get something that looks like a, a pretty sharp decline. Um, um, it doesn't have to happen on Friday. Obviously, we're just using that as, a, as something to anchor on this particular week. Um, but the reality is, in our in our bear case scenario, which we have not talked about much yet, you know, we're really talking about the base case and the bull case scenario thus far, and the bull case scenario and the net liquidity function, which you know assumes you start to see a drain of the reverse repo facility balance as a function of the co- economic conditions improving. You know, the markets are being able to take duration risk, being able to take equity and credit risk. That gets you something that looks like 4,400 on the S&P. The bear case scenario, which is the scenario I you know, kind of alluded to, which is core inflation momentum stalls out around 3 to 4%, and we got to really bang the hammer on it to get it to 2%, to 2.5%. Two, two that in that scenario, net liquidity is going down to, you know, going to lose about a trillion dollars in the next six, seven months. And that's a scenario where you get to about 3,400 as fair value in that scenario for the S&P 500. And the, and the thing that I've been you know talking to 42 macro subscribers about for the last it's called four or five weeks, which is, hey, look, both of those polls, those tails are, are equally likely. It's going to depend on the evolution of the inflation data, which is currently mm-hmm. behaving in a way that it's never behaved or very rarely behaved across all these different time series. But if you get inflation stalling out at a level that's much higher than what the Fed needs it to be, you're talking about 3,400 on the S&P, something that looks like, you know, low, t- low the high teens or sorry, not high teens, you know, like 10, 12,000 on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So, so what are your expectations for bonds in this? It sounds like there's there's you're concerned about risk assets because either the Fed pauses and goes sideways, 
or the scenarios that seem more likely, they pause and go sideways or they have to keep hiking because inflation, inflation is going to be key. Mm -hmm. But the the sort of rate cut, aggressive rate cutting scenario is seems like it's at the bottom of your scenarios. What what do we do with bonds in this situation? If there's downside equity for uh, downside risk for uh, risk assets for equities, what about bonds? Mm -hmm. I would uh, one quick uh, clarification. I wouldn't necessarily say that the bull case, the Goldilocks scenarios at the bottom of the scenario. Right now, I would assess each of these scenarios as being reasonably likely based on everything we know about the lagged impact of the monetary tightening we've assumed. We know we're going to have a growth slowdown. It's going to continue. Um, we, the leading indicators would suggest that we we learn what we've learned in the last, you know, let's call it month, is that inflation dynamics have really changed materially. Mm -hmm. Now, does that change persist? Or is it just like a one-month blip? Or is it going to be a nonlinear process to improvement? That's something we don't know yet. Um, that's that sort of this is why the bull, the, the left tail and the right tail, in my opinion, are equally, you know, relevant. But the bare minimum, the middle, the, the central tendency of the, that entire distribution is one that the market is, is still a uh, hundred, 150 points overpriced in S&P terms as it relates to the bond market. This is, you know, I think if you think about two of those distributions, uh, the base case and the bear case, both of those call for more bond market volatility than what's currently priced in. They're both of them call for uh, the bare minimum an evisceration of the rate cut bets, the speculative rate cut bets out of the 2023 pricing in the euro dollars, Fed fund futures, overnight index swaps, et cetera. That stuff needs to, to take place. Um, in the bull case scenario where inflation continues to just drop like a like a pancake or drop like a drop it like it's hot, I guess. I don't know what to, to borrow a phrase from uh, from Pharrell and Snoop Dogg. But you know, if the inflation continues to do that, then you've 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 traversed peak rates. All that stuff's um, all that stuff's behind us, but I think there's a two-thirds chance, based on all the different uh, probability assessments that's, that we're currently making, based on the data, that you do see some more volatility in the bond market. Because again, the market got ahead of itself in pricing in a dovish Fed. Mm. So I guess we have to talk about energy, right? Because that's sort of at the center oh of this of 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 the inflation story. Um, is that going to depend? I mean, inflation seems to be the key the key issue here. Is it going to depend on what happens with the price of oil? Uh, yes and no. Uh, so oil was a major contributing factor to the uh, deceleration, particularly in headline that we saw last last month. But again, I think that's kind of a sideshow. What really happened last month is we saw a pretty sharp breakdown across a variety of inflation categories, not the least of which were services and, and other pockets of core. So to me, I think it's it's less about energy than people realize. But energy is going to play a factor. Um, and, and, you know, one thing we saw, we had the OPEC uh, statement uh, yesterday, the OPEC uh, ministers effectively saying, hey, look, we might be overdoing it in terms of, um, you know, adding supply into this market. We might be creating a scenario where, um, you know, there's there's surplus as opposed to a deficit. So, um, you know, it, it's not clear to me that, you know, this is an organization that wants to necessarily play ball with the United States of America in the sense that, you know, wants Joe Biden to get as many votes, et cetera. You know, like clearly if you're if you're. If you're OPEC, <laughs> the, you you just assume not have the Democrats, you know, you know, maintain power or, or you know, kind of do well in the midterm. So um, this is something from a just a geopolitical, longer term geopolitical standpoint. You actually might start to see international sort of um, pressure build back into the, um, you know, in terms of geopolitical risk premium, build back into the energy market as a function of okay, what's the best outcome for us longer term from OPEC standpoint. You also have China. I, I think China is a wild card. I mean, <laughs> with hundreds of indicators we. we 
monitor and measure and track across China. And, and none of them are relevant at this particular juncture, because again, what's driving China is the zero COVID policy in that cycle. And as long as that's the case, it's going to be hard to, to make a real credible call for energy demand globally um, in one way or another. But one thing we do know is we did have sort of a trifecta of things all weighing on energy at the same time. You know, you had peak recession fear going back a couple of months ago. You had China zero COVID and, and the sort of the whole evisceration of the China reopening narrative get priced out of um, energy markets. Um, and then you had, you know, strong dollar and you had the Federal Reserve obviously leaning on that. Um, and, and oh, by the way, it wasn't more than a trifecta, it's a quadfecta. You had the SPR released as well. At the bare minimum, look forward a couple of months from now, two of those things will be removed. So you're probably going to remove some selling pressure uh, on the energy market. And if they're going to be reducing supply in that scenario, then that's when you can get a much material, much bigger move higher. But if we do get a big move higher in energy, it's probably going to come a couple of months from now. Yeah, that's it. And, and we are watching really closely the People's Party Congress as well. We're going to try to do a lot of programming around that. Um at Real Vision, because that's going to, you know, hopefully give us some signs of what we think is going to happen with that zero COVID policy. Um, that's when they set their economic agenda for five years. Um, Darius, this is, it, it, it's, it sounds like it's still a really, if we sort of take a step back and try to synthesize, we didn't even get to talk about Europe and what's happening there. Um, we, we, all over Twitter today, there was a chart, if we just pull it up real quick, a chart that was making the rounds that caught our attention, um, really pointing out the enormous strain of electricity costs. I mean, they're just up, you know, it's hard to imagine the, the increases. Um, they they lay it out really nicely in that chart. I mean, it's just staggering. Um, we saw the euro hit parity. You talked about the dollar kind of maintaining its, its strength. Um, are you looking at the euro at all? Do we expect that to continue to weaken? Yeah, so I mean, we've been long the dollar. So it's yes, the, the answer to the question is, is, is yes. One thing that's weighed on the dollar in recent, you know, kind of in the last couple of months, at least prior to the most recent move we've seen over the last couple of weeks, which is the market got very aggressive in pricing in a dovish Fed. You know, not necessarily mm. today, but the, you know, the forwards markets, the futures markets were very much on board with, you know, this is a Federal Reserve that's going to do an about face pivot um, pretty quickly towards the end of right after the end of its tightening cycle. Now, again, if this is a Federal Reserve that over the next series of months, really starts to lean against that expectation that's currently priced in the market and maybe even for being forced by the data, the inflation data to guide to more tightening in 2023, not even not even, um, you know, uh, easing. Then the euros, you're going to open up a pocket of downside risk for the euro, because one thing that I think is sort of being mispriced by markets, I hate using that phrase because, again, markets are market is the truth. That is the mm -hmm. truth. Whether or not you agree with it is, 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 is it's, it's what matters as an investor. But, you know, what, where I do see some element of mispricing is the fact that a lot of what we've seen observed and kind of the change in European um, um, you know, economic fundamentals over the last couple of months, it's gotten a lot worse from the perspective of energy policy and energy prices yeah. and stuff like that from Europe. But we have not necessarily seen that 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 rate of change really applied to the currency market. And part of the reason is, again, we were so enamored as investors with pricing in a dovish Fed, you know, for mm -hmm. 2023. I think once we're done being enamored with pricing in a dovish Fed, either because they tell us not to, or the inflation data tells them to tell us not to, then the euros, I mean, you're going to, I mean, there is no support for the euro until you get to like 80 cents. So. These are incredible times we're living in. So, so if we pull the lens out, Darius, I mean, the, 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 the takeaway from this conversation seems to be that the word of the day is hold. Hold yeah. on a second, right? You know, yeah. you think it's premature to call a recession. The economy will weaken in the fall, but labor, the labor market, because of shortages, may hold up. So 
It's not clear we're going to get a soft landing, but it's possible. Possible. Um, It's all going to hinge on inflation. And we're going to have to watch month by month because all the outcomes are on the table. But if you got overly aggressive about thinking that there will be Fed cuts early next year, you ought to check your positions because you may be getting ahead of yourself. Is that fair? 100%. I believe the great philosopher Nate Dogg is the one who said, uh, hold up, wait, just wait a minute. You know, as investors, we want to have you know, this sort of, you know, we, we want to, we're linear human, we're linear thinkers as, as animals, as creatures. We want to have a, a clear, cogent narrative that get, guides us from point A to point B. Unfortunately, right now we're in a scenario because of the, how unusual the inflation dynamics are on the ground right now, there is no, there's no like obvious, you know, path from point A to point B. There is a path from A to B to A to C to A to D, but we don't know what door to enter into. And I do believe we got to analyze the next couple of months of inflation data. If inflation data bounces around lower, we're going to have a problem. If inflation data stays where it is, we're going to have an even bigger problem. If inflation data stays on this linear path lower, then we're going to have a lot of um, a lot of positive outcomes. And so to me, again, I just don't think we have enough information as investors to be making a big bet here. Um, and I think it just really is going to come down to September 13th, August CPI, September 30th, August PCE, and October 13th, September PCE, CPI. Those are the three big dates on everybody's calendar, in my opinion, because once we get those three data points, we'll have a much clearer sense of what's inflation going to be like six, 12 months from now. And if once we have a clear sense of what's inflation going to be like six, 12 months from now, we can then start to price in the appropriate range of outcomes into the equity, credit, currency markets, et cetera. So I think um, October, could, September, October could be very volatile, but they could also be leading us to a very easy, nice, calm, you know, uh, end of the year. So let's just got, got to do our jobs. Let's hope it's the latter, Darius. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's been a heck yeah. of a year already. Uh, fantastic conversation. Darius, thank you so appreciate much you. for that. Really appreciate all the insight. Um, Always. And thanks to all of you for watching. We're going to be back same time tomorrow. I'll be with Katie Stockton, who's going to talk to us a lot about levels. And one of our RV friends will be along for the ride, too. So hope you can join us then. Until then, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.